Well, I'm not sure exactly how it's happened, but for some reason, sometimes there's a kind of an attitude or a spirit in general in contemporary uh, Americans and Europeans that Jesus and the religion that he came uh, to bring to us is somehow, uh, you know, a kind of an easy and nice religion. It's, it's in contrast to the Old Testament. The Old Testament is really tough and it's about law. And the New Testament is about, you know, it's, it's like easier. But it, wherever that kind of perception came from, it certainly didn't come from the words of Christ himself as recorded on every page of the gospel. Whenever you read the gospels, Christ is speaking uh, about the moral law in a very uh, rigorous and you know even severe manner. Here he is, he's actually contrasting uh, a true Christian observance of the moral law over against the Old Testament law, and he's saying that it's not easier, it's tougher. Okay, so he's got actually a stricter approach to things than the Old Testament law. And uh, he says, unless you're Righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees who were known to be the kind of religious professionals of the day. Uh, you're, you're not going to be saved. You can't enter the kingdom of heaven. So, with the gospel of Jesus Christ, uh, morality uh, and, the, and the moral sort of requirements and, uh, and standards, they don't, they don't uh, go down, they go up. But, hopefully, I'll be able to convey to you a, a sort of... Uh, um, a sense of confidence that we as Christians can obey the moral law by taking a look at the Old Testament text. Today we, we celebrate the commemoration of St. Ephraim. St. Ephraim is a saint of Syria who's a deacon, and he was known for um, uh, taking amazing uh, kind of theology and catechetical truth and putting it to music and he, I, I think he actually used a harp, and he would play the harp, and he would sing these songs that were very uh, profound kind of theological reflections and mystical meditations. And he prayed, uh, and he sung a lot about the Blessed Virgin Mary. And this is back in the, in the fourth century he lived. And so he's known as being one of the kind of the Marian saints. So I'm going to talk about Mary in connection to our uh, first text from the book of Kings. Uh, as we know, the Carmelite, in the Carmelite tradition, Mount Carmel plays a very, very important part. And so, here's a, Elijah the prophet, who is a uh, virginal, celibate man, and uh, the Carmelites have a great dedication to Mary. They look to him as their patron, and they look to Mary as their, their second patron. And they read this text here that we have in front of us in a very profound and mystical fashion, and I'll, I'll try to explain to you how they read it. They see this cloud that Elijah sees in the distance. They see this cloud as actually a prefigurement of Mary, of the Blessed Virgin. And uh, this is this is kind of how it goes. So if you if you kind of go back to the story here, the land of Israel was bereft of rain for three and a half years because of the idolatry of the people of Israel. It was, as it were, the original sin of Israel. Okay, they, they committed idolatry 
and they refused to repent and in punishment as a consequence of their sin, God sent famine on the lands. And so everybody is, there's no water, there's no crops growing, people are starving, people are dying, it's, it's a terrible situation that they're in. And uh, that's likened to the, uh, the post-fall situation that we as human beings find ourselves in. There's a drought of righteousness. We are all born in original sin. We are all born infected by uh, an inner tendency to sin and a lack of God's grace that separates us from God. That's the state of the world after original sin. So we are, as it were, in a drought. We're starving, we're thirsting for righteousness, for holiness, for communion with God. And we're waiting for relief to come. So here's Elijah, and he has this premonition that it's going to rain. Okay, God prophetically gives him this sense that the rain is going to come. So he goes up to the top of Mount Carmel, and he kneels down in this in this profound posture of prayer. And it's through his intercession that he kind of brings about this uh, relief from the famine and the drought. And he says to his um, uh, his servant, go up and look over at the sea. And so he goes one time and he sees there's no clouds. Okay, there isn't a cloud in the sky, no promise of rain whatsoever. Looks just as, as uh, hopeless as it's ever looked. And so he comes back and says, I see nothing. He says, go again, go seven times. And so there's a total of eight times that he goes up to the top of Mount Carmel to look over the sea, to look for clouds. And if we, it's very interesting, about, so he goes up eight times before he sees this cloud. And about 800 years would transpire between this event and the birth of the Blessed Virgin Mary. So there's a pretty neat connection right there already, eight times 800 years. And uh, he sees this little cloud. Now in our translation, the cloud says, he says it says the size of a man's hand, like a small hand. But that in Hebrew can also be translated foot. So it's, it's as a man's foot, it's a human foot. And in the tradition of Mary, of course, uh, we, we see this idea of Mary crushing with her foot, the sole of her foot, the head of the serpents, who was the original cause of, uh, of original sin. And so we see this, other translations in the Greek Old Testament and in the Vulgate, in the Latin Old Testament tradition, that's translated foot. So they see this cloud, a little cloud on the horizon, and it's in the shape of a foot. It's a kind of a premonition of Mary or a symbol of Mary. And the other connection is that the, the clouds are formed from the sea. The sea is full of salt. It's bitter. Just like humanity in general is corrupted and uh, is infected by original sin. But the cloud that comes from that sea, it's absent the bitterness and the salt. And it's able to come over the land and rain on the land and send fresh water that's absent the bitterness of the sea salt. And so it's a figure of Mary who comes from sinful humanity. She arises from sinful humanity and she's small and humble. And yet she is without the bitterness of original sin. She's born immaculately or she's conceived immaculately without the bitterness of original sin. 
and it, she is the presage of the deliverance of, uh, of, of, of our deliverance from sin. And we see her on the horizon and she comes and then it rains and brings relief, uh, to the land. And so also, you know, we can, we can feel condemned because the moral law is tough and it's, there's high standards. But we look to Mary and we have incredible confidence because through her immaculate conception, she has overcome the devil. And we see someone who has lived free of sin. She is the embodiment of the gospel. It's the power of the gospel that enables us through grace to abide by the moral law and to live up to the just requirements of the law. So we don't have to lose heart. We don't have to lose hope. We don't have to be intimidated by our Lord's teaching and the high standards that the moral law brings. We can have that true confidence that through the intercession of Mary, by her example, uh, by most especially the grace that has come to us through her son, Jesus, we can, in fact, uh, live up to the moral law. Our righteousness can, in fact, exceed that of the scribes and Pharisees and so enable us to enter into the kingdom of heaven.